All right. We'll be in John chapter 4 again. And I'll read verses 1 through 26. John 4, 1 through 26. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judah and departed again for Galilee. He had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God... And who it is who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come to draw water. Jesus said to her, go And call your husband and come here. The woman said to him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. For you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Lord,
you are sovereign in everything that takes place. So from the very time where you had to go through Samaria to meet this woman, that revival might come to that town, Lord, to the goings and comings of each and every one of us here now, 2,000 years later in our daily lives. It's all in your hands. Lord, we thank you that a part of, a major part of our lives bound up in your sovereign determination to have saved us and to have met us here in the middle of our history so that you might have this kind of meeting with us too. Lord, we stand in a long, long line of people who have come to know you in similar ways, who have repented and confessed their sins, who have turned to you as Lord and Savior, who are truly examples and trophies of your grace. And so we ask, Lord, that as we look back on one of these individuals' lives, that you would help us, Lord, to see just how gracious you are and how blessed we are to have experienced your mercy. Lord, please take these truths that we're going to look at here tonight and comfort our hearts, convict our hearts, encourage our hearts, rebuke us in every way, Lord, that we might grow more and more and more in our love and knowledge of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I want to, since Fred preached last week, just back up a little bit and um, revisit the context. Uh, Remember, this John is writing to a largely Gentile audience And in doing so, we find him giving to us um, these two people who he goes and encounters in this personal one-on-one interaction with Nicodemus. We looked at in John chapter 3, the Pharisee, who was the religious elite of his day. And then here, this Samaritan woman who, from the outside looking in, would have been about as too extreme of people as you could possibly drum up. And John isn't just drumming up stories, but he is being very careful and specific in how he's writing his gospel because he wants his Gentile audience to understand that Jesus is the comprehensive Savior that he is, meaning that there is no person for whom the gospel does not apply. We can preach the gospel to anybody, anywhere, anytime, under any circumstances. And there is no one that is outside of the bounds of the gospel presentation. We can go to anybody, any woman, any man, any color, any tribe, any tongue. In fact, one of the glorious truths we find in the book of Revelation is that there are people from every tribe and tongue and color and language and people. They're worshiping before the very throne of God. It's interesting that even in Revelation, again, a book that John wrote, there is still this identity of 
tongue and tribe and culture and nation. And I don't know how those distinguishes are maintained in eternity, but it certainly seems like that they are there in Revelation chapter 4. And so praise God for that. And praise God for this, because I think that we, you know, who are hearing this, all find ourselves somewhere in the range in between the Samaritan woman and Nicodemus the Pharisee. But we find that salvation is not exclusive to any one particular group, any one particular person, any one particular sex, any one particular tribe, anymore. In fact, that's how Jesus ends this. Pretty much by saying that all of those distinctions are abolished, and we'll get to that here at the end of the sermon. But Jesus goes, and he had to pass through Samaria to meet this woman. It was, as we talked about, a sovereign, predetermined path that he had to take. Now, there were plenty of other paths to Galilee, but he had to go through this particular path to meet her. And we saw the history of the Samaritans, how they came about as a type of um, half-breed people in that the Jews, when they were conquered by Assyria, were taken into captivity. And then the Assyrian habit was to uh, bring in people from other nationalities in order to breed out the nationalities of the nations they had conquered. And whereas some of the ten tribes did not fall into that particular scheme by the Assyrians, the Samaritans did. And in doing so, they became a conglomeration of both Jews and whatever other races came into uh, that land. And in doing so, they still wanted an element of worship of the true God who had brought them out of Egypt. And in so doing, they requested for priests to be brought back. And of course, the Assyrians sent back some corrupted priests who perverted and twisted Jewish worship and made it more indicative of this multicultural makeup. Having only the first five books of the Bible being their canon of scripture, having Mount Gerizim there being their place of worship rather than Um, Jerusalem and Mount Zion being the focus of worship. So Jesus goes and he meets with this woman in the middle of the day. And they begin this discussion about drinking water. And Jesus is clearly thirsty and wearied from his journey. I love that. Jesus is perfectly human. There's never a time where Jesus didn't suffer all of the very same things that humans suffer, right? He suffered hunger. It was one of the temptations that Satan used against him there in the wilderness, turn these stones into bread. He experienced weariness. It says so right here. We know that he bled and he sweat. We know that he grieved as he wept over the tomb of Lazarus. And we can imagine that he probably had somewhat of a sense of humor as well, making Peter go catch that fish and pull that coin out of his mouth in order to pay their taxes. So in every way, Jesus was a man like we are, but he was still completely and totally God in perfect and eternal union and harmony with the Father and with the Holy Spirit, the other two persons of the Trinity. And so Jesus, being a man weary, he asks this woman for a drink. She says, why are you asking me for a drink? 
And he goes on to talk about this wonderful, glorious living water. And remember we talked about the fact that a Jew would have understood what he was talking about because they had the full canon. But because the Samaritans didn't, his phraseology of living water welling up to eternal life didn't immediately register with her as being from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 43, Isaiah chapter 12, Isaiah 55. We looked at those texts two weeks ago and we saw that all throughout the book of Isaiah, this was something of a symbol of what would come, what would be when Messiah would come. That living waters would satisfy the souls of the people who encountered the Messiah. Remember that my, my favorite, the one glorious passage there in Isaiah chapter 12 that with joy you will draw waters out of the well of salvation. Just, ah, it's such a vivid, wonderful image. It's just a phrase that I want to roll off my tongue all the time. With joy we will draw waters from the well of salvation. It's a truth that we can continuously and always go to Christ and find him to be the most refreshing thing for our souls. And we never get tired of Christ. Never. He never gets old. He never becomes something that's just boring or old hat. I can go into the pages of scripture and read about him. And so many times I see these glorious, wonderful things that feel so new, even though I've read them multiple times in the past. And it's because there's no exhausting Jesus. There might be exhausting the words of scripture, meaning that I've read the whole Bible through. You probably read the whole Bible through as I have several times. But yet you keep coming back to it and finding that it enriches your soul, nourishes your spirit over and over and over and over again. And really that's what Jesus is getting at here, right? Sychar woman, she's like, I don't want to come back and draw water anymore. It sucks. It's hot. I don't, I come in the middle of the day because I don't want to be around all the other women. I, I just, hey, this would be great if I had a little spring of water in my belly that did a little bubbly and I never had to come back here and draw water and I was never thirsty again. How delightful would that be, right? Oh, it would be, it would be. But you see, so often of the time, so, 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 so much I see this, that people Focus on truths that are so inferior to the actual spiritual truth that is contained in Scripture, right? So people will desire to have their felt needs met, right? Have you heard that phrase before? It's pretty common, your felt needs. Now, let's be perfectly honest, and I've said this before, and it's a truism. Self-assessment is hard, right? It is really hard to look at yourself and determine what do I actually really need. It's almost always going to be skewed one way or another. So it's why we need people from without coaches and mentors and um, that kind of thing in order to help us see our flaws and our errors. And the reason I point this out here in this context is because what this woman is doing is focusing on her own felt need not being thirsty anymore, not having to come truck her big old 
jar or whatever way out here and put it on her head and walk back to town or whatever it was that their particular cultural custom was. And it was so inferior to what Jesus was saying, but she couldn't perceive that there was something bigger and greater. And ministers over the years have latched onto this. And so in order for popularity or to get people, you know, to tickle their ears, they'll preach to your felt needs. And they'll, so they'll preach to certain things that they know are going to, you know, pump you up emotionally or get you feeling a certain way. And, and, and frankly, it's manipulation. And so we want to make sure and we want to beware that we're not allowing our own expectations of what we receive from the Lord to be inferior to what's actually he, what he is actually doing by the power of the Holy Spirit. So he says to her, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. Verse 14, but whoever drinks the water I will give will become a well of living water springing up to everlasting life. Give me this water so I don't have to come here and draw water anymore. Jesus says, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you were right in saying I have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. What you've said is true. Now, This is where we pick up from two weeks ago. Go call your husband and come here. Now this this woman, we find out here now, she isn't just a woman, she isn't just a Samaritan, but she is for all intents and purposes a legal prostitute. Marrying, just divorce, marrying and divorce, marrying and divorce, marrying and divorce. And I'm sure this isn't the very first time in her entire life that the man she was living with wasn't her husband, right? I mean, none of us are that naive. So this is her lifestyle and the way she's practiced. It's why she's out there in the middle of the day, as if it wasn't obvious already from uh, the context of the story that there was something suspicious or scandalous about her background that she was out there at noontime drawing water. I mean, really... Which one of us plans to do all of our yard work at two in the afternoon on a, on a Saturday in July here in Chico? No, it's going to be 108. <laughs> no, we're going to get up early in the morning and we're going to do it and we're going to work till about 10. And then we're going to go inside or maybe grill something or, you know, we're just going to sit where it's cool for the rest of the day, right? Well, not her. So this is why she's out there. So Jesus... I love this. Here's why. Let me, me, yeah. He calls her out and he says something that, let's be perfectly honest, this is absolutely shameful. And she would have been just turned my shade of red, right? Just a bright, vibrant pink because of her embarrassment of him saying who she is and what she's done and How does he even know who she is? He knows because of who he is as the Messiah. But Jesus here, as he points out her particular sin, is doing something that is very, very important for us to understand. Salvation never comes without the conviction of sin. Salvation never comes without sin. The conviction of sin. How could it? 
What, do you, what could you possibly be saved from if it isn't the conviction of your sin? Now, you and I have all heard people, pastors, preach, give altar calls that if you will, you know, just come forward, you know, you'll have your best life now. You know, if you, wanna, if, if you want to you know, have your, you know, are you living in poverty and you want to have, you know, that type of lifestyle done away with, come to Christ. He has all the riches. Maybe you're sick and you're ailing. Maybe you're not, you know, you're not in your best health that you once were. Well, if you come to Christ, he is, he'll heal all your deeds. By his stripes, you will be healed kind of thing. Or you've heard it. Maybe you're going through a time and, you know, and you're just despairing and discouraged. And, and you know, you're, 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 even, you're even hurting for your own life's sake. Well, if you come to Christ... Uh, He will give you this type of fulfillment that will make you happy and you will experience happiness all the time. We've we've heard that. We've joked about it and we've grieved over it. There's even more subtle kinds of ways of preaching it too. The more subtle kinds of ways is, you know, you, you, you really know you're not a good person, but if you would just, you know, be better, you could come and you came to Christ, you would be a better person. Isn't your mom disappointed in you? Or, you know, don't you just feel like you're not living up to your potential? And, you, and those kind of things get in your head and you feel like, yeah, yeah, if I could just do... Or, or you, we find examples in the Bible and go, there's an example of a man who did this. Right? Dare to be a Daniel. He stood in the face of this oppression. And if you would just stand up in your face of oppression, God will accept you too. I've heard the gospel preached like that. And you hear in everything that I said, in none of those categories was there the conviction of sin. Was there, you are a rebel sinner against God. And God is so holy and so righteous. He it demand, he is behooved to convict you of your he is behooved to judge you for your sin pardon me he must he must judge you for your sin so what will you do with that what will you do with your guilt it's one of the reasons when i share the gospel with somebody i try as best i can despite all the questions that they want to bring up and try to obfuscate from the matter at hand i want to make a beeline to their guilt It's universal. It's the one thing I can absolutely count on, and I don't even need them to acknowledge it because they're not accountable to me. They're accountable to God. All I need to do is point out they are guilty before a holy God, and they actually know it. What are they going to do with that? What are you going to do with that guilt, that shame? In fact, what are you going to do with the thing that brought about that guilt and shame? Your sin. Right? That's what Jesus does here. He brings up her sin. He brings it to the surface. <clears throat> he has it where holds up a mirror and shows her who she really is and exposes the ugly nature of what's really going on in her heart and the actions that she has been committing against the Holy God. Now, somebody might say, well, maybe she didn't know any better. Well, on two accounts, she most certainly did. Number one, even as a Samaritan, she still has the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy and the book of Exodus. There's no getting around that one. Both of those books have clear-cut 
delineations of the law that she had violated even right here. Secondly, we all know that she has the law in her heart. Now, albeit she's created in the image of God, and that image is marred and twisted and deformed and not right, yet the law is still there, and it convicts her, it convicts her, and it convicts her, and it convicts her, just like it does everybody who exists. And everybody has this conviction of sin and this guilt within them because the law is there. It's not enough to save, but it's certainly enough to show us the revelation that we stand judged before a holy God. In fact, Paul goes even so far as to say in Romans chapter 1 that those who do these things know that they're guilty of death, know that they're guilty of judgment, know that they're guilty before God Almighty. They know it. We know it. You might suppress the truth and cram that bad boy down like you would a trash can that you're not trying to take out till the next morning. But it's there nonetheless, and it stinketh nonetheless. It is bad, and it is on display, and it is clear. Salvation does not come without the conviction of sin. Now, it's been a while since we've went through Hebrews, but turn to Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4, verse 12, 4, the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. That is a very comprehensive statement on the need for the conviction of sin. In fact, I'll go even further. It is a very comprehensive statement on why we only need to preach the gospel in order for people to be saved. And we can trust that the word of God is going to do its work, right? First of all, I don't need to be clever, I don't need to have all of the answers to all the questions, right? I don't need to know physics and biology in order to preach the gospel. I don't need to know philosophy and some other, whatever it is, understanding of all of the cults and isms. I don't need those things. I need one singular thing, and it's the word of God. It's the word of God that saved any one of you. It's the word of God that is what does this saving work, right? Jesus is the word of God. And what is he doing for this woman to bring her to salvation? He's laying her open, naked and bare before the eyes of whom she must give an account, right? He is dividing between her soul and spirit. He is dividing between the joints and marrow, between the thoughts and the intentions of her heart, right? It's exactly what he's doing with his words. And when I share the gospel with somebody, what I need to do is come and bring the word of God to them. Now, I might answer a few questions here and there, but again, I'm going to make a beeline to guilt because it's only there and then that I can bring the truth of God's word to that guilty conscience and then allow the Holy Spirit or trust that the Holy Spirit is going to do its work. Because let me be perfectly honest. There's only two ways to respond to this. That's it. 
It's well said there is no neutrality in anybody's life. There are only two ways to respond to this. One is you will harden your heart. And like Pharaoh, the harder your heart becomes, the less and less and less and less you will hear the Lord as he's speaking to you. This is the one who suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. This is the one who takes the word of God and hears it and doesn't want anything to do with it. Or maybe they did want something to do with it initially and then the cares of this world choke it out, right? The other way of responding to this is in faith and repentance. And of course, those only come by the Holy Spirit. We're well aware of that. But the Spirit does not save anybody apart from the conviction of sin. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And it isn't just the good news that brings that. It is the bad news that makes the good news good. You see? Faith comes by hearing the bad news. You're guilty. You stand condemned before a holy God. You're a sinner. You are by nature a child of wrath. Isn't it hard for you to kick against the goads? Right? And that bad news is what brings the sweetness and the joy to the good news that Jesus Christ substituted himself for my place. That he bore God's judgment for me. That Jesus as the Messiah took on this sin. Can you think about this for just a second? Here he's talking to this woman who has been sleeping around. There's at least six men that we know of here in this story as Jesus relates it to her. And Jesus is about to go to the cross in just about a year and a half's time. And he's about to suffer the wrath of God for her sleeping with these six men. God is going to treat Jesus as if he had committed these sins so that he can turn around and treat her as if she had lived Jesus' perfect life. Jesus' death is very specific, beloved. This is why we love a particular atonement. This is why we love a serious understanding that Jesus Christ didn't just in a peanut butter kind of way die for all sins of all peoples and it's just all done it's all under the blood kind of thing but that he particularly and specifically knew my sins before I even committed them and yet still determined that he would come and suffer and die for each and every one of my sins my sins have been taken upon him all of them, and it isn't just in a nebulous kind of fashion that the big blob of patness was poured onto Jesus and then that was kind of burnt off of Christ. No, each and every one of my sins that I deserve punishment for was poured out onto Jesus Christ. Every single one, specifically. Otherwise, God's not a righteous judge. He has to judge every single individual sin. And if even one sin goes in all of eternity left unpunished and unjudged, God is unrighteous. So this nebulous kind of, oh, Jesus just did the stuff and now it's up to you kind of thing, it doesn't fly. It's not the way the apostles preached. It's not what we find in any of the epistles. 
He atoned for each and every one of our sins. He died for this woman's adultery and each and every, this fornication and each and every single one of these cases. And he did it for each and every one of us too. Salvation does not come without the conviction of sin. We need to not be timid when we bring up sin in front of people that we're talking to. Now, we don't want to be jerks about it, right? Our job isn't to belittle people, but our job is certainly to say, no, that's sin, and let me explain why that's sin. And let me explain why your guilt is what it is, and here's what you can do with it. Believe and repent. Those aren't bad words. Especially repent. Some Christians think that's some kind of Christian four-letter word you're not supposed to talk about. But boy, there's nothing more wonderful, really, than repenting. You know? I mean, it's humbling, for sure, to go and ask for forgiveness. I mean, even if just Caleb, let's say I'd said something stupid and was mean to you and, you know, or what, whatever. I don't know. I could think of all kinds of things, but that's the first one that came to my mind. And then I was convicted and I had to go apologize to you. Sure, that's humbling. Sure, it's not the first thing I want to do or maybe even the 12th thing I want to do. But the truth is, when I go and I confess my sins and our relationship is restored, there's harmony and there's beauty there. And that's just on this earthly level with me and Caleb. How much more with the Lord, when my sin has separated me from the Father in the sense that my relationship is not what it should be with him, and I need to repent, and I do, and that relationship is restored, it's so sweet. And that's as a Christian. How much more when you aren't a Christian and you are living in the depths of despair of sin and you're living in the dark depths, the pit, and the miry clay, as it were, to use biblical language, and you are dead without, you are dead like bones in the desert and God comes, invades your life, breathes new life into you and you go from darkness to life and you have this well within you of living water that you suddenly realize doesn't have anything to to do with your physical thirst but everything to do with your entire existence and your thirsty dead soul oh what glorious glorious truth comes from being convicted of your sin and responding in repentance and faith it's glorious and that's what the lord is doing with this woman and she responds sir i perceive you're a prophet now if this could genuinely be obfuscation on her part, right? She genuinely could be trying to get out of it and trying to, you know, say, well, what about this question, right? When you're witnessing to people, a lot of times that's what they do. Bring up questions that don't quite exactly go with what you're talking about, right? Well, that might be what she's doing. Or she might actually be saying... Oh, you didn't know that about me, and you couldn't have known that about me. I think you're some kind of prophet. Or probably, more likely, it's a mixture of both. Because, she says, well, where are we supposed to worship? You Jews say Jerusalem, we say it's here on Mount Gerizim. And then Jesus gives this wonderful, wonderful, wonderful confession to her. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Now, I 
can't overstate the radical nature of what he just said there. For all of history, people have been worshiping in specific locations. Though all the way back to the very beginning, Cain and Abel built an altar. And they worshiped at an altar. All the way through the history of all of the peoples, people build temples and they go and worship there. It might be some place that some spooky hooky thing happened, or it just might be the highest point around, or it could be all manner of whatever. But people have always built temples and gone and worshipped. And Jesus is here saying, now there's coming a time where it doesn't matter where you worship. That is absolutely paradigm shifting in terms of religion, in terms of worship. It's unheard of that there wouldn't be a place where you would go to worship. But now all of a sudden a time is coming where this is all going to change. And listen to this. You think this kind of absolutely paradigm shifting revelation would be something he would have said to Nicodemus. But he didn't. He told Nicodemus he had to be born again. He tells this woman and confronts her with her sin, but yet he tells this woman this profound truth, and it doesn't come up in any of the other Gospels. But I'm so glad we have it here for us now. Verse 22, you worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is of the Jews. Now, he's not speaking, he's not being mean here by saying, you don't even know you worship kind of thing. He's saying that your worship as these Samaritans is a perversion of the Jewish religion. And you don't even know the God that you're worshiping because it isn't a God. There is no God. That's what he's pointing out. But salvation is of the Jews because they are still worshiping the true and living God. And Jesus, of course, is this Messiah who's going to come from the Jews. But he says, despite that, verse 23, the hour is coming And is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. A few things. First of all, this is a little bit of a side note, but God is not a man, right? God is not an exalted one of us. He is spirit. He is eternal. He is omnipresent and omniscient. He does not have spatial locale or location. This is why he can be worshipped anywhere at all places and all times and doesn't need a temple to go and worship in because he is not in any way like us. He is spirit. But to go on and to close with this, those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. In spirit and in truth. They go hand in hand. And I point that out because there is much worship that's done today in one or the other. Now, there's much worship that's done purely in the spirit, and by spirit, I'm kind of using a small s there rather than a large s indicating the Holy Spirit. 
What I mean is that they're very emotional and they get very drummed up easily and they will equate experience with genuine worship. Jesus here is saying we must worship in spirit and truth. So there certainly is an experiential element to our worship, isn't there? There certainly is. But what we don't need to do is come into an empty room and invite the Holy Spirit to show up so we can get some spirit involved in our worship, right? We also don't need to run up and down and drum up some kind of, you know, hootenanny to to get the spirit going so we can worship him in the spirit. What worship him in the spirit means is that we pray, Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit so that you might be pleased with the thoughts that are in my mind, the words that come out of my mouth, the, what I hear from the sermon, what I say as I sing these songs, my heart as I partake of the Lord's Supper, my prayers as I pray them to you. May I worship you with all my body, all my soul, all my heart, and all my strength. I can only do that in the power of your Holy Spirit. That's what worshiping in the Spirit is. And worshiping him in the truth is in the Scriptures. And let me contrast it. There are some people who they are very biblically minded, right? We might think of a King James only kind of church where they're all about this book and all they're going to get in this book. And if it ain't in this book, then it's on the hook kind of thing, you know, and I don't want anything to do with it. And so they're all about the book, but they are not worshiping in the spirit because they are not worshiping by the means and the power of the Holy Spirit enabling them to do what they're doing. They are dead and focused on the text and the words of the book rather than allowing the spirit to enlighten these and then allowing the spirit to take these and transform our hearts and their lives. You see, this is the realm of legalism. This is where that kind of religion comes from. Not wanting the experiential or the legalistic. True worshipers will worship him in spirit and in truth. And while we are very, very, very mindful of being in the Bible, right? It's pretty clear. This is where we get our authority. I was telling some people at the church I was preaching at this morning, I'm a one-trick pony. And this is my one trick right here. This is all I got. If you want something else, you're going to have to go somewhere else and find it because it ain't coming from me. Frankly, I, I, don't, I don't want that kind of pressure <laughs> to have to come up with stuff. But seriously, even more than that, what do I possibly have to say that's worth any value more than what's here and contained in sacred scripture? Nothing. So I, I get my thoughts, I get my sermon, I get my heart, I get the things I say from Scripture itself. And I pray and I pray and I pray that the Spirit would fill me as much as I preach, that he would fill you as much as you hear the sermon. And that our worship would be one that's worshiping the Lord in spirit and in truth. And Jesus here, he says in response to her, well, we know the Messiah is coming. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So Jesus reveals himself to the greatest, supposedly, the pillars of society, all the way down to the most mean and the lowest of the low in society. He is, I love this, no respecter of persons. 
He will invade your life with his grace and it doesn't matter what you think. (laughs) You are his and he will do with you as he pleases. And that is a wonderful, wonderful truth. And I'm so glad, so grateful that he has seen fit to save me because there's not a chance if it were up to me, I would be saving myself anytime soon. Lord, we thank you for the love that you display to this woman here in the far parts of the world, as far as we're concerned, because it displays to us the fact that you love us and you save us from our sins in a comparable fashion, Lord. You convict us of our sins. You reveal yourself to us to be the Messiah, and then you lead us into all truth and all understanding. Lord, We pray that as we worship you, we would worship in spirit and in truth, all for your glory and your great name's sake, Jesus. In your name, amen.